This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, human rights advocate and author Maria McFarlane Sanchez Moreno is joined by Brady Morales Woolery to discuss corruption in Colombia's military and political establishment. This event was recorded on March 28, 2018, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Thank you so much for coming out uh, to talk about your book. It was uh, an amazing read, very moving. My father is from Guatemala, so um, Latin American politics and and the corruption there is very close to my heart. Uh, Before we dive into the book, I would love to start off by talking a little bit more about you. Um, You had a really interesting childhood, uh, from what I heard. You were were raised in Lima, Peru. Uh, Would you start by just... Uh, telling us a little bit more about yourself and uh, and your life. Sure. Uh, well, first, thanks for having me, and, and thanks to everybody who's come out this evening. Uh, I, I did grow up mostly in Lima. I was actually born in Turkey. My, my father was a U.S. diplomat. My mother's Peruvian. Uh, so I was born in Turkey, lived in Antigua and Brazil. And then he, my dad took early retirement when I was eight, and uh, we moved to Lima to be close to my mother's family. Um, and that was in 1985 when the Shining Path uh, guerrillas, a Maoist insurgency group, was um, growing and, and uh, committing really horrific atrocities in the Andes, the mountain range uh, that splices Peru. Uh, and um, and uh, the, the economy was a shambles. Uh, it was a really difficult time to be in Lima. And uh, and yet it was also a fascinating time. And it got me very interested as I grew up in looking into issues of social justice. You know, there was so much inequality. Uh, there were so many people uh, in the capital in Lima who had been fleeing the war in the Andes. Uh, and you could see uh, that that they were different and that they had come from far away. Um, and you kept seeing these slums growing on the edges of the city. And, uh, and we also kept hearing about corruption. And uh, it was very common if, a, if the police stopped you uh, that they would ask you for a bribe um, just so you couldn't get a ticket, that sort of thing. Um, so, so I grew up very interested in, in these sorts of issues. And then when I was a teenager, um, we ha- ended up with a, an autocrat. Uh, the president shut down Congress. Uh, this is Alberto Fujimori, uh, Fujimori, and uh, he took over complete control of the government. And so through much of my teenage years and, and the first part of college, um, I, I saw... Uh, what an autocracy was like. Um, and actually, at the very beginning, I was uh, supportive of Fujimori uh, because there was such a sense of chaos in the country uh, and, and violence and you know, the bombings of Shining Path were starting to happen in the city, in my own neighborhood. I, um, so in comes this person who says that he's going to bring order to the country and he starts taking steps in that direction and you start seeing results. And as a teenager, that seemed right to me. Of course, I quickly changed my mind when it became clear uh, that the cost of that was uh, death squads and, and, uh, and massive corruption, theft at the highest levels of government. Um, so that was another lesson. And all of that eventually fed into me wanting to work uh, in the human rights field at the beginning. Yeah, it seems to be a common thread in Latin America, right? That kind of pervasive corruption in a lot of countries that disguised as, uh, you know, this hero, knight in shining armor kind of coming to, to, to save the country, and then it, it ends up 
you know. Yeah, it's a very common uh, problem, both on the right and the left. Uh, you know, very strong, popular figures who look like they're going to make a difference, but um, but corruption is a widespread problem, and and often you see how these leaders who have t near total power are at the same time. Uh, benefiting or profiting handsomely from that power. Uh, so after that, you, you um, eventually studied law, right? And how did you end up in Columbia? So I came to the US when I was 20 and went to law school at NYU and uh, was trying to figure out how to work on these sorts of social justice issues that I'd, I'd, that I'd seen growing up. And uh, I thought about academia, that didn't seem like, quite the fit. Um, I did a, a teaching fellowship at Fordham Law School um, where I took my students on a fact-finding mission to Bolivia uh, and also taught them a course. And I enjoyed the fact-finding mission so much more than the course that I was teaching that I realized, no, I, I really want to do the activism, the work out in, in the places where things are happening. And um, through that, I met some people at Human Rights Watch who told me, oh, there's an opening. You could be the Brazil researcher. Why don't you apply? So I did, and I got the job, and then they immediately froze it for lack of funding. <laughs> so that was my first uh, experience of one of the realities of nonprofit work, that you know you are dependent on funding. <laughs> and and uh, so they said, why don't you wait, do something else for a while, and, and we'll try to call you as soon as we get the resources. So I took another job, um, and 10 months later, they called me again, and it turned out that they didn't have the resources for the Brazil position, but their Columbia researcher had left. Um, and my mother had always told me, you can do whatever you want, do human rights, but please don't go to Colombia. that's so dangerous. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, all these kidnappings, it's horrible. Uh, but there was the only job offer in the human rights field, and um, I was terrified, <laughs> but, but, uh, but also really excited to, to try it out and, and push myself a little bit. And, um, and so I accepted, and uh, and that uh, was life changing. Yeah. Did Did you feel uh, fear when you were in Colombia doing? I mean, sure. working for this organization was it kind of consistent? Like, did you did you have armed guards taking you around? No. Or no, 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 no. <laughs> no, I wouldn't have been able to do my work if I had armed guards. I mean, you have to be able to uh, go to places and not be noticed, um, sure. or not not too much, and. Mm -hmm. Uh, also, you know, if you had police escorts or that sort of thing, um, you know, they'd also be monitoring you. Absolutely. It's like walking around with a bunch of spies. It's not, it's not helpful. Um, so, no, I would go uh, sometimes on my own, sometimes uh, with colleagues or consultants who knew uh, particular, who had particular skills. For example, I traveled a lot with a photojournalist who would take photos and, and I would do the interviews. But I, I traveled to many parts of the country over the next five to six years um, documenting atrocities and uh, trying to convince the Colombian government and the US government to take steps to, to stop them and uh, to put in place um, policies and institutions that, um, that would protect people um, and, and further truth and justice. Uh, and it was, it was really tough. Um, the, at the time, Colombia had been at war you know, since the 1960s for many decades. as a war involving the left-wing guerrillas of the FARC, uh, a smaller known guerrilla group called the ELN. Um, the Colombian military, and then these paramilitary groups that claimed to be ideological, claimed to be right-wing and fighting the FARC, but that in fact um, had always had close ties to drug traffickers or were drug traffickers themselves, um, and had always been close also to certain business interests. And uh, a lot of what they were doing was really more about protecting those interests are taking territory for their drug trafficking operations under the guise of counterinsurgency. Um, 
And the government uh, of Colombia, at the time led by President Alvaro Uribe, uh, was very focused on fighting the FARC guerrillas, which, you know, fair enough, they were committing horrible crimes, uh, massive kidnappings, use of anti-personnel landmines that left civilians maimed, uh, recruitment of children as soldiers, you know, bombings, killings. Um, so the, the, the military was very focused on fighting the FARC, but they pretty much turned the other way when it came to paramilitary abuses. Um, and in fact, in many cases, I knew when I started, the military had been known to be collaborating with the paramilitaries. The paramilitaries would basically do the dirty work. Um, there were lots of situations where, um, where the paramilitaries were said to have uh, gone right in front of the military barracks on their way to a small town to commit a massacre, or even used a military base and flew out of the military base to commit the massacre, or used their equipment, that sort of thing. Um, so it was a it was a difficult job to try to get the Colombian government to do something about that when, in fact, they were. Um, I'm not sure if sympathetic is the word, but uh, they were well aware that this was going on and, and they were choosing not to do anything about that. And the U.S. Um, was pouring millions of dollars into Colombia in the name of fighting drugs. Uh, this was part of Plan Colombia, which was initially um, a Clinton administration proposal, um, but then was embraced by the Bush administration. And um, they were invested in saying that Plan Colombia was working, that it was a success. Uh, and never mind that, uh, that supposedly in their fight against drugs, they were funding the military, which was working with the biggest drug traffickers in the country. <laughs> um, it didn't make any sense. Yeah. When you uh, went out to conduct these interviews and you met with people, I mean, all, all types of people, were they open with you? I mean, did you did they want to share their stories, or was it difficult to get them to tell these? I mean, some of the stories are so heart wrenching. I mean, just violent, terrible stories. Uh, how did you go about talking to them and getting them to share their their stories? Uh, you know, a lot of people really wanted to talk. I mean, I was always very careful at the beginning of every interview to. Uh, well, first, I would, I would meet people through other people that they trusted and knew, through local organizations or uh, journalists or, or various sources. And um, at the beginning, I was always very careful to explain what it was I was doing, how, uh, how the information might be used, and to give them total control of the terms on which they were talking to me. You know, they could tell me their name if they wanted to uh, or not. They could go on or off the record. Uh, they could just tell me whatever they felt comfortable with. And, and I wasn't going to pressure them to say more than they wanted to. Um, but I found that so many people uh, you know, had never told their stories because they were surrounded by others who had suffered similar devastation. Um, so they're all carrying traumas, and and for many people it was, I think, in a way therapeutic to have someone listen to them, someone external listen to them for the first time, and and basically say that that was wrong, and um, that we would try in some way to do something about it so that it wouldn't keep happening. And I think people wanted to contribute to that. It was a way of standing up to, to what had happened. Was it hard? I mean, hearing these stories, I feel like I would have been a mess just crying with the people. And I mean, it just, did it take its toll on you? You know? Uh, over, it, of course it takes its toll. Um, I was usually calm during interviews, but, but yeah, at the end of the day, uh, it's, it, 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 uh, it builds up. And uh, by the end of the six years, I was, um, you know, I had some secondary trauma. I was a little oh. burned out. And I also started pushing myself too hard. Uh, so there was that tendency of, to always feel like you have to collect more stories, take more risks, go to more dangerous areas of the country. You, know, you asked earlier if I was ever afraid. 
in Colombia and I wasn't routinely afraid. I wasn't going to be, you know, the major target of the killers because I was too high profile. I mean, I was coming in as, as an American, as uh, somebody from a human rights group, you know, for somebody to want to hurt me would have, they would have been sending a pretty big message. Um, but certainly in, in, in more rural areas, it, it was scary. There, there were people who you wouldn't want to cross or you wouldn't want them thinking you're asking too many questions about what's going on. Um, and I had some weird, some difficult uh, exchanges with police at various points. Uh, but again, my situation paled in comparison to that of the people who were living there. Sure, absolutely. Um, so what was it about that work that you were doing that inspired you to write this book? I mean, what, I mean how, did you, how did you decide to go from, from that, you know, recording people's stories, to, to actually sitting down and writing a book about it? Well, so I was, as a human rights um, activist, my job had been to document atrocities and, and write reports that were kind of cold documents, um, listing facts, and, uh, and didn't delve in detail into the personal stories of the people there. And, uh, and you were always talking about policy and what needed to change and this and that. But I got to know so much about the people there. And um, I got so frustrated, too, with the portrayals of Colombia outside of the country um, that I wanted to, to show something different. You know, in, in the US, most people um, know about Pablo Escobar, right? And uh, history kind of ends in 1993 when he got killed. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's 25 years ago. Um, or they know about the FARC and the FARC's kidnappings because they've seen photos of Ingrid Betancourt, the former presidential candidate who was held in captivity for many years. Um, but Americans usually don't know that much about the paramilitaries, even though they were responsible for widespread uh, massacres and, and bloodshed and, and the displacement of hundreds of thousands of people from their homes. Um, and uh, more importantly for me, uh, people didn't know about uh, the, the wonderful heroes, the very brave people that Colombia has, who in the face of uh, all the brutality and all of the corruption around them, uh, insist on standing up for what's right, uh, on fighting, uh, not with arms, but just struggling to uh, ensure that, that uh, there's basic human dignity, that, that um, you know, these are people who believe that a better life is possible. And, and, uh, and they take enormous risks and many of them get killed and um, many of them face real threats, but, but they continue. Uh, those stories are nowhere in the United States. Nobody hears them. Um, frankly, in Colombia, people don't talk about them. And I wanted to, to bring that out. You know, the real heroes are not the DEA agents that you see in Narcos. Um, <laughs> it's, the, it's the activists, it's the students, it's the lawyers, it's the journalists um, who you know, day in and day out are, are doing this work. And so the book, uh, tells the stories, the, the interconnected stories of three such people who, um, who ultimately prevailed in a way. And so the other thing about it is that it's a story of hope, uh, that in really challenging times, ordinary people can make a difference. Uh, and that's, I feel like, a, a, it's a very important message for people in the U.S. today, as things seem to be getting worse and worse in so many ways, that um, people in circumstances that are even more terrible uh, have have again stood up for basic principles and and uh, succeeded. Yeah, that's what I got from the book. It was an overwhelming feeling of of hope. Um, I mean, just 
so many cases of these terrible atrocities and massacres, you know, occurring and the corruption of the government. But I love the way you focus on these three people and, and show their struggles. And it was just really inspiring to, to hear their stories. Um, now, the, the title of your book is There Are No Dead Here, A Story of Murder and Denial in Colombia. Um, I, I think it's a great title. I, I, it's, I, even, I mean, sometimes you see a book and the, the title just grips you. You know, from the <laughs> moment I saw the title, I, I was interested in it uh, when I heard about it. Um, I, I know that it's uh, inspired by a quote mm -hmm. from uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, right? How did you, how did you decide uh, on that as your title? How, yeah. What's the story there? Yeah, so... Um it started with a conversation I had with one of my main characters, Ivan Velasquez, who um, was an assistant justice on the Colombian Supreme Court who led these really important investigations uh, into links between paramilitaries and members of Congress in Colombia. Um, and uh, it was a very brave thing for him to do, and uh, he ended up putting a third of Colombia's Congress in prison for colluding with the paramilitaries. Um, but uh, in 2011, um, he was giving a speech. Uh, he was receiving a, a human rights award from the International Bar Association. And he gave the speech, and he gave me a copy of it, uh, in which he quoted from Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. And the quote was, the story of José Arcadio Segundo, uh, one of the main characters, who witnesses a massacre. The massacre, the massacre of the banana companies, where he sees 2,000 people getting killed. And uh, he's horrified, he manages to escape, he goes back to his hometown of Macondo, and, um, and he's, he tells people, you know, I saw all of these dead, so many people were killed, it, it was horrible. And people say, no, 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 that's not possible, there are no dead here. Uh, since the time of your great uncle, there have been no dead here in Macondo. And you know, it's a it's a way of talking about a society's denial of mass violence and atrocities, even though it's right in front of their faces. Um, and in the speech uh, where uh, Velasquez quotes um, from Garcia Marquez, he says, "I want to dedicate this award that I'm getting uh, to all the Jose Arcadio Segundos I've known in Colombia who have." said the truth about what was happening in our country and were not believed. Uh, and in particular, he says, I want to dedicate it to one of those, Jose Arcadio Segundos, a man called Jesus Maria Valle, who was my friend and who told the truth about what was happening and was killed for it. Uh, so this is clearly a very important story uh, about his friend, and I decided to start digging into it uh, and asking Velasquez why, why he dedicated the award to Valle. Um, and uh, it turned out they had been friends uh, in Medellin years before, and, I, and I'd heard about Jesus Maria Valle. He'd been a very prominent activist in Medellin in the 80s and 90s. Um, and so I started piecing together the story um, Valle was this much-loved figure uh, in Medellin. He, um, in the 80s, had taken over the leadership of the main human rights group in, in Medellin after three of its leaders were killed in rapid succession. Uh, he went ahead, took it over, um, was very outspoken, very gregarious person. He would uh, jump in, um, you know, would hear about some community that was being evicted from its housing, you know, displaced people who, who had fled the violence um, and were living in slums, and, and he would go and, and stand in front of the bulldozers to keep them from, from uh, demolishing the homes. Um, and then he would go as a lawyer and he would fight to get them new housing, and he would actually get them the housing. Uh, that sort of person. He would get directly, personally involved in in addressing injustices around him. And um, he had a, he was the main provider for his 11 brothers and sisters, bought them a whole house, just really um, giving 
person. Um, he grew up poor in a rural region several hours outside of Medellin called Ituango, part of the state of Antioquia. All of, the, all of those together are part of Antioquia. And um, he had in, uh, you know, ever since he was a kid, uh, loved Ituango. Um, and uh, he kept going back to this rural region. And so when he grew older, he became a councilman for Ituango. And every weekend, he would drive back and forth between Medellin and this, this rural region. And he started hearing stories about how, in 1996, paramilitary groups were showing up in Ituango and were killing people. Uh, more than that, he kept hearing that they seemed to be working with the military, that they would go right in front of the military barracks and nothing would happen. Um, so he started complaining and he went to the 4th Brigade of the Army in Medellin um, and, and complained. He went to the office of then governor of Antioquia, Alvaro Uribe, who later became president, uh, and complained and asked for, for them to intervene to protect the defenseless civilians of Ituango, he would say in, in his letters. Um, and they ignored him. In uh, one meeting, uh, a witness told me uh, that uh, in one meeting that Valle had with uh, then Governor Uribe, uh, Valle told him everything that was happening, complained about collusion between the army and, and the paramilitaries, and the governor got up, picked up the phone, called the head of the 4th Brigade of the Army, and said, you know, com Commander Manosalva, I have Jesus Maria Valle here. He is making false allegations against you. I think that this deserves um, a lawsuit for defamation. Uh, what do you think? Here, let me put him on the phone with you and you guys can talk. And, and you know, he sent him off to meet with the commander. Uh, a few months later, a member of the army did sue Valle for defamation. Um, and it got very heated. Uribe started calling Valle an enemy of the armed forces. Um, Valle kept speaking out very publicly in the media as well, um, trying to get public attention to what was happening in Ituango. Uh, in October of 1997, things um, got even more heated because uh, of a massacre that happened in Ituango. Um, paramilitaries started to uh, head towards a small town called El Aro, a uh, 300-person town. And Valle heard about it because people with farms along the way started calling saying, hey, they're, they're going through, through here. It looks like they're headed to El Aro. You know, somebody needs to stop them. Valle and other people started calling uh, the 4th Brigade, calling the police, calling the governor's office, saying, please do something. The paramilitaries are on their way. And um, they kept getting evasive answers. They were saying, no, elections are this Sunday. We can't do anything. We're all confined to our barracks. Oh, let's meet in a few days. Um, well, the paramilitaries went into El Aro, uh, and over the course of several days, uh, killed 17 people, torturing many of them to death, raped many of the women, killed a 14-year-old boy, um, eventually burned down the entire town and stole all of their cattle uh, and forced the remaining people to flee. Uh, this was the way the paramilitaries operated at the end of the 90s. It started in the state of Antioquia, and in one of Valle's speeches, he said, the meridian of violence in Colombia goes through Antioquia. This is where it all begins and it's gonna spread from here. And he was right, uh, it was prophetic. Um, and uh, you know, after, after 97, you started seeing the same massacres um, happening in neighboring states, increasingly across the north of the country. And uh, throughout the late 90s and early 2000s, the paramilitaries basically used terror to take over uh, vast expanses of Colombia. Supposedly for counterinsurgency, they would say their victims were guerrilla sympathizers or were guerrillas themselves. The reality is that a lot of what was going on was that they were trying to seize control of territory for drug trafficking. 
And um, these were areas that were critical for moving drugs or for production, uh, for access to the ocean. Um, and, uh, you know, it also had all these side benefits. You take over this territory, you get the cattle, you get the land, your cronies can then take over the town. Um, so then you control everything. Um, but Valle uh, was the one who was one of the early people who were sounding the alarm about this, about the paramilitary's violence and about the military. And after the massacre of El Aro, he became even more outspoken about it. And he seized the opportunity of the defamation lawsuit against him to uh, try to get the courts to, to investigate what was happening. So uh, in, in testimony, he spoke about what he viewed as the complicity, the tacit complicity of uh, the military and the governor's office um, in, in what the paramilitaries were doing. Um, and uh, it just got increasingly heated. And then uh, in, you know, within a few months, uh, assassins went to his office one day and um, shot him. And uh, this left a deep impression on Ivan Velasquez, who was his friend, um, who was the person who gave the speech I mentioned earlier. Um, Ivan Velasquez at the time was the chief prosecutor uh, of Antioquia. Uh, and um, he, when he learned of Valle's murder, he ran from his office to, uh, to Valle's office and was there um, you know, as, they, um, as they examined the body and all of that. So. Um, it, it, was, it was something that left a deep impression. In the following months, he, as chief prosecutor, tried very hard to go after the paramilitaries. And um, he had a, a lot of success. He, his investigators, at one point, conducted a search uh, and found all of the paramilitaries' accounting records and arrested their chief accountant. Um, and found that those records included all sorts of information about business people and uh, landowners who were contributing to the paramilitaries. Um, and within a couple of days, uh, Velasquez's team had frozen 500 bank accounts that looked suspicious uh, of possible contributors. Um, but that investigation, which could have been you know, a fatal blow to the paramilitaries, fell apart because uh, within a course of about a year, 11 of his investigators got murdered. And the National Attorney General's office, for reasons that still remain murky, uh, decided to take the investigation away from him and move it to Bogota. And it really never moved forward from there. Uh, and uh, he says he was asked for his resignation. Other, the people at the Attorney General's office say, no, he resigned. Uh, another thing that will never be solved. Uh, but uh, again, that also left a deep impression on Velasquez and uh, probably shaped him uh, years later uh, and, and led him to uh, be even more committed to getting to the bottom of the links between paramilitaries and members of Congress in the parapolitics investigations that he led uh, at the Supreme Court. Uh, so you've, you've talked a little bit about uh, Valle and Velasquez, um, but you have the third character uh, that you focus on in your book is Ricardo Calderon. Uh, how did you find him? I mean, how did he, how did he join the, the trio? Yeah, so I, I knew Ricardo also. I, I knew Ivan Velasquez uh, from my work in Colombia and also Ricardo Calderón. Um, Calderón is an investigative journalist in Colombia uh, who keeps an incredibly low profile. Most Colombians <laughs> have no idea who he is. Um, there are no photos of him publicly available. Uh, he writes for Colombia's main news magazine, Semana, always uh, these amazing articles that he never signs um, and uh, has just uncovered scandal after scandal. Uh, he, um, in, in the 90s, uh, well, he started out, he was a terrible student um, and, uh, and went into journalism 
you know, basically because it was something to do uh, after getting a communications degree. Um, but he was very intrigued by, uh, by what was going on in the more remote regions of the country. And, and Simana needed people to go to so-called uh, red zones uh, where, where there was a lot of violence. Um, and so he volunteered and he started traveling to, to places where massacres were happening. He documented atrocities by both the guerrillas and the paramilitaries, but he also, he started writing about the paramilitaries massacres at the end of the nineties. And a lot of people weren't writing about them. And, um, around the early 2000s, the paramilitaries started to be more visible. Um, their, their leaders started to speak in public more. Um, partly it was because uh, with Plan Columbia, I think um, the US was under pressure to, to get the Colombian military to do something about these links with the paramilitaries, right? It didn't look good. Um, and uh, and the paramilitaries were trying to make sure that their image was better. So when when Ricardo would publish these articles about about massacres, the paramilitaries would call him. Uh, very senior paramilitary leaders would would call him and would say, "No, no, no, you got your story wrong. Those were guerrilla sympathizers." Or, <laughs> "No, we didn't kill that many people. We killed only this many." that sort of thing. Um, and he would say, no, no, I, I have my facts, here's what I'm doing. But they wanted to spin what they were doing. And they started inviting him to, to their camps to meet with them. Um, so he, as a good journalist, went out there to see what was going on. And he was surprised when he met with them to find that he kept running into members of the intelligence service. Uh, and then into senior government officials. <laughs> um, so he realized that there was something else going on there. Uh, and in around 2005, he published a, a groundbreaking article about how uh, senior members of the intelligence service, uh, now during the administration of President Alvaro Uribe, um, were colluding with the paramilitaries, and that included the head of the intelligence service. Um, so the head of the intelligence service uh, was prosecuted, um, and uh, and there was a big scandal. Um, but his story intersects with Ivan Velasquez's story because after Ivan Velasquez started these his own investigations into links between the paramilitaries and members of Congress. Um, and he started really going after very prominent members of Congress, ultimately put about a third of Congress in prison, he started facing attacks from the president. Uh, president Uribe started accusing him of uh, buying witnesses, um, of trying to frame him, the president, for murder. Um, uh, and there were, there's just one thing after another that uh, that people around the president were were saying that Velasquez was doing, and it was clearly an effort to discredit his investigations. Um, the Congress members were very close to the president; they, they were part of his coalition. Uh, Calderón, because of his links, you know, because he knew the paramilitary so well, and because he was constantly meeting with them, uh, ended up finding out that paramilitaries were meeting with presidential advisors in the presidential palace, and he got recordings that proved it, um, and ended up writing a big story about how, uh, how these paramilitaries had gone to the presidential palace to plot uh, ways to get evidence to smear Velasquez, basically. So that was a big deal. Um, Velasquez's investigations uh, could have really suffered uh, if this hadn't been uncovered. Uh, the, the president was extremely popular and many Colombians believed him. And when the president had said, you know, Velasquez is trying to frame me for murder, Velasquez is buying witnesses, the Supreme Court is um, this or that, you know, many Colombians believed that. But then when Semana Magazine 
shows that paramilitaries are going to the presidential palace <laughs> and plotting this, um, you know, that, that threw a wrench into that narrative. And uh, it became an even bigger story uh, an, about a year later <clears throat> when Ricardo Calderon published another story about how the intelligence service, now under new leadership, was engaging in extensive illegal surveillance uh, of many people, but in particular of Ivan Velasquez um, and of members of the Supreme Court. And uh, initially the government was, like, was saying, no, that's not true, and they tried to confuse the story, but uh, Ricardo over several months kept producing more and more pieces that backed it all up. And ultimately, uh, his, his uh, revelations forced the government to shut down the intelligence service. The agency no longer exists uh, in that form, uh, which is a huge deal. <laughs> and, um, it's very rare to see a journalist have impact of that magnitude in a country like Colombia. Um, so, but all of these stories together, um, Valle, Velázquez, Calderón, um, allowed me to paint the picture and tell the story of how the paramilitaries expanded, of how they developed these close ties to, to people in government uh, at different levels, and of how that that was revealed over time and how despite the society's denial of what was happening um, and despite everybody's efforts to cover it up, uh, ultimately it became impossible uh, for people to deny what was happening because the evidence was so clear. Um, and by the end of it all, again, a third of Columbus Congress in prison for colluding with paramilitaries to commit electoral fraud, or in one case, murder. Um, multiple uh, senior administration officials also prosecuted and convicted for colluding with paramilitaries. The intelligence service shut down. Um, and many Colombians, I think, ultimately uh, emboldened to demand more from their government, to fight for the truth, to fight for justice. Um, so it's a horrible, devastating story, but it's also ultimately a hopeful story, I think. Yeah. Reading it, I was, uh, I was consistently afraid that, that, uh, Velasquez was going to be killed. I didn't, I didn't realize when I started the book, I mean, and Valle is, is, dies so suddenly in the book and it's, it's such a, so it was so hard to read, you know, the, the way it happened, um, what are what are some of the events that have uh, stuck with you the most from the book? Things that you that you uh, think about, and, and I mean, for for me, it was it was um, one of the massacres. I think El Aro massacre just so so terrible, and, and I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I think I I got to know those stories so well because I interviewed survivors of the massacre and, and I, I tell the story of the one of the whole, one of the chapters is the story of the massacre and I tell it um, from the perspective of one of the survivors who, who lost her little brother. Um, and that story is one that I, I do think about every so often, but I have to try not to dwell on it because it's very painful. Um, and, and the story of Vaya himself, I mean, I, 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 I still find it moving even though I know it very well and I've written it very well. I find it um, hard because I also know his family. Um, I know the people who loved him and, and, uh, and that pain doesn't go away so many years later. So, yeah. That's such an amazing scene in the book. Um, would, you, would you like to to read a little bit of it, or do you think sure. that would be... Yeah, I could, I I think could read the, that scene. Okay. I, I have a, I've got my, my copy right here. Excellent. There <laughs> um, you are. Yeah, no, I can, I can read um, part of that. <clears throat> Valle's sparrow-like sister, Nellie, who had been his secretary for years, had first noticed her big brother was afraid in December 1997, two months after the Alaro massacre. At the end of the workday, Valle would look over his shoulder as they got into a taxi. He asked her to keep her son from watching TV in a room with a window overlooking the street, which he felt was too exposed. 
At one point, he urged her to find some other place to live. She had been hurt, thinking he was mad at her. She didn't realize it was because he didn't want her to be there when they killed him. Velázquez and J. Guillermo Escobar had tried to convince Valle to seek protection. Valle was getting a lot of public exposure in the media, and his accusations against the military were the kind of statements, thought Velázquez, that got you killed. Valle's campaign was also making many people, not only members of the military, increasingly angry. As Velázquez waited to enter a meeting at the governor's office one day, he overheard Uribe's deputy, businessman Pedro Juan Moreno, speaking mockingly about Valle as that nutcase with his accusations. Later on, Velázquez recalled that there had been huge hostility by Pedro Juan and Uribe toward Valle. The minute Valle made an accusation, which he would make public through the newspaper El Colombiano or radio stations, there would be a strong reaction from the military or the governorship. International human rights organizations offered to buy Valle an airplane ticket out of the country. Even if it was just for six months, Velázquez and Jota Guillermo argued, he should go, at least until things calmed down a bit. But Valle refused. Why would Valle stay knowing he might get killed? Years later, Velázquez agreed that it was hard to understand. But Valle was one of those people, he said, who could die of sadness if he fled. No, more than sadness, shame. For someone as attached to his people as Valle was, leaving was not an option. When he talked about my town, my people, he wasn't speaking rhetorically. He was talking about his people. So Valle continued taking taxis to his office and walking from there to the courthouses and prosecutor's offices for hearings and meetings. At least, Velázquez and Jota Guillermo agreed, they would try to get him some bodyguards. With the exception of his closest friends, few people continued to associate with him. Many of his acquaintances now kept their distance. Valle started getting phone calls from people who would then hang up, threats, or perhaps attempts by his enemies to keep tabs on him. But Valle was also filled with indignation. After his fight with Uribe and the 4th Brigade over his claims about links between the military and the paramilitaries, he had no more peace, recalled Gloria Manco, a former student of Valle's who was close to the activist. He had his moments of reading. He was a man who loved books. But after that point, he didn't have those pleasures. His last days were supremely difficult because he could not derive joy even from the smallest things. When she came back from lunch, Nellie saw two men at the door. They were wearing suits and ties and carrying briefcases. Thinking they were clients, she unlocked the door to the little reception area that led into Valle's office. But as Nellie started to go into the office to greet her brother, the men shoved past her, pushing her into a chair across from Valle, who looked startled for a second. Then, realizing what was about to happen, Valle turned to his sister and held her gaze firmly. Stay calm, Nellie. We're here now. He let the men grab him. At some point, a woman slipped into the office and helped them tie Nelly and Jaramillo up on the floor near the door. Then one of the men pulled out a gun and put something on it, a silencer. Be quiet, one of them hissed. They forced Valle to lie face down on the floor in a corner of his office next to the window and tied him up there by his hands and feet. Nelly couldn't tear her eyes away from Valle's face as one of the men put the gun to her brother's head. She screamed when they shot him. It's such a, it's so sad. Um, I, I, I remember, I think, did it, did it, does it say after that they tied his hands with his shoelaces? Yeah, um, later on, they, uh, the examiners noticed that his, they tied his is thumbs any, together with a, his shoelaces. Was that a, a symbol or is that, it just seemed, it's so you know, striking to me. It is striking and, and I, I don't know what that was about. Um, Nobody's ever been able to explain it to me. Yeah. Um, just, I mean, I kept thinking, why didn't he just leave when they when they told him they could get him out of the country? You know, it's that just wasn't who he well, was. Of course, those the, the heroes, right? They they're never willing to to leave when they have the chance, right? That's why they're heroes. Yeah, and if you talk to Ivan Velasquez about why he did what he did, and um, you know, wasn't he afraid? And he would say, look. If they want to get me, they're going to get me. He'd had, you know, earlier uh, uh, fights during the days of Escobar, um, where uh, where Escobar's people had told him, you know, if we want to kill you, we will. You can get one bodyguard, we'll send two people after you. You can get five, and we'll send ten. Um, you can get twenty, and we'll send a whole battalion of people, and we will kill you. Um, so. 
for people like that, um, they, what I gathered from them is just, this is who they are, this is what they do, and, um, and they realize that that is a risk that, that they'll be taking always, um, but they try to put that aside. Uh, would you talk a little bit about the the political climate um, that that led to the paramilitaries rise at, was after Escobar was killed, right? Was that did it create like a power vacuum in Colombia that allowed them to kind of step in and, and replace Escobar? Uh, so I don't know how many people here watch Narcos, but the story is actually told there. Um, most. Americans know the story up to Pablo Escobar getting killed, and he was this big drug kingpin head of the Medellin cartel. Um, Escobar was killed, uh, supposedly by law enforcement, but he was hunted down in his final months, both by law enforcement and by a group called the Pepes, the people persecuted by Escobar, um, who were former associates of his. Uh, who had had falling out with him, they were angry at him for various reasons, uh, and they were also working with the Cali cartel. Um, and the Pepes, uh, after Escobar was killed, uh, quickly filled his shoes. And turned out the Pepes also included several leaders of the paramilitaries. So uh, it's what I was saying before, the paramilitaries became the country's biggest drug traffickers after Escobar. Uh, and they, they had always had ties to drug trafficking. Um, one of the earliest paramilitary groups was called the MAS, uh, Muertas Secuestradores, or Death to Kidnappers. Um, it was formed by the Medellin cartel to go after guerrillas because the guerrillas had been kidnapping family members of the cartel because they figured, well, the cartel has a lot of money, we'll kidnap kidnap their relatives, ask for ransom, make a lot of money that way. And, and the response of the cartel was, you know, you kidnap our people, we, we exterminate all of you. And that was, their, that was one of their paramilitary groups, Death to Kidnappers. And Death to Kidnappers did morph over time and, and, uh, and uh, many of its members, you know, became part of the, the other paramilitary groups. So by the end of the 90s, you had this large paramilitary coalition called the AUC, uh, led by uh, a man called Carlos Castaño, who had once been a member of the Pepes, which killed Escobar. In 2016, the Colombian government kind of really publicly made peace with the FARC, right? I mean, we, we heard about, that was kind of one of the big news stories because we had, you know, that was one of the few things that we heard about. We heard about Escobar, and we heard about the FARC in the United States. Um, and that move was kind of vocally opposed by the former president, Alvaro Uribe, mm -hmm. um, who was also kind of a, a major character in your book, um, one of the villains, uh, I think. <laughs> um, would you talk a little bit about that peace process in Colombia? And I, I read something just today about um, some issues with, with that kind of peace treaty um, would you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, the Clemming government negotiated with the FARC uh, and um, entered a peace deal in the last couple of years. It was, it's not a popular peace deal. Um, there's a lot of controversy around it. Uh, there was actually a plebiscite uh, um, in 2016 in which uh, a very narrow majority voted to oppose the peace deal. Um, many of them uh, uh, listening to uh, former president Alvaro Uribe, who was very vocally opposed to the peace deal. But you know, the FARC is, is wildly unpopular in Colombia. I mean, they did commit widespread kidnappings and, and killings, and you know, they claim to be fighting for the people, but they did so much harm. Um, and, and so they, they're extremely unpopular, and it's not surprising that, that many people don't like the idea of, of um, them having this peace deal where they don't serve any time for their crimes and where they um, get to have five seats in the Colombian Congress. Um, so there's that. Um, 
but you know many other people do want the peace deal and and view it as critically important to move forward and to have a better uh, safer more peaceful country um, my view of it is that that's not that even if the FARC does effectively demobilize and that the peace deal is successful in that sense, that they've removed an, one actor from the battlefield, it's not really going to address the underlying factors that drive violence in Colombia. Um, the FARC you know, is, in a way, an ideological actor, although over time it became uh, more involved in the drug trade, taxing drug producers, coca producers. Uh, in some cases, factions became actively involved in drug trafficking. Um, so their, their motivations got distorted. Uh, and, and it's not as simple as a left versus right dynamic. Um, but still, if you take the FARC out of the battlefield, you remove one ideological actor from the conflict. And that, could be a good thing. The problem is that you still have this enormous illicit market in drugs, uh, which is the result of prohibition, right? And as long as that market exists, you're going to have organized crime in Colombia trying to profit from it uh, because there is nothing else that is remotely as profitable as drug trafficking. Um, and you're talking about a, a country that has weak institutions, that doesn't have a strong state presence throughout the country. Um, you're talking about a place where there's a lot of poverty. And uh, the reality for, for many people is that they don't have a lot of choices. You know, if you live uh, in, in many rural areas where coca is grown, you know, organized crime tells you you need to grow coca. It's not like you even want to do it. Um, but if you're a young, um, a young man in Medellin, for example, you might be able to get a regular job and maybe make the minimum wage, but it's gonna be pretty attractive when organized crime says, hey, you can make many, many times that, and you can have all this power and run everything in your neighborhood. And yeah, you might be risking your life, and yeah, you might be arrested, but you, know, you might get killed anyway, so why not be the big guy? And, um, and so that's why many people have joined armed groups historically in Colombia, and um, it's beyond ideology. And as long as you have the illicit market in drugs, you're going to have armed groups or organized crime wanting to do that. And we're already seeing how, uh, as the FARC has left many parts of the country, um, other groups have stepped in. Many of them are uh, what the government now calls criminal gangs, but are basically the descendants of the paramilitaries who supposedly demobilized in 2005. Um, you know, these successor groups to the paramilitaries are, are taking over many of the spaces that the FARC leaves behind. In other cases, um, factions of the FARC have not demobilized and just remain active. Um, and we're seeing reports of community leaders, activists getting killed, dozens of them last year. Uh, and that's in part because of this uh, changing s scenario where, where people are fighting a little bit over turf and, and trying to assert their control. So unfortunately, even though you know, I think the stories I tell in my book are hopeful and make, uh, and and I think it's absolutely possible for people to make a difference. I think many of Colombia's underlying problems of brutality and corruption will remain there um, because of prohibition. I think that's a great segue into uh, talking a little bit more about your work with the the Drug Policy Alliance and the Human Rights Watch. Um, it's, uh, I read online um, that in 2013, the Human Rights Watch became the first major international human rights organization to call for the decriminalization of the personal use and possession of drugs and, uh, and to call for uh, global drug reform more broadly. Would you talk a little bit about that and, and how the criminalization of drugs is really a human rights issue? Absolutely. 
Yeah, so, uh, so I led that effort within Human Rights Watch to adopt a policy on drugs. Um, after my work in Colombia, I, I came away with a strong sense that um, I could spend years working to end human rights abuses in Colombia and trying to convince the Colombian government and U.S. government to do something about it. But unless you tackled this root cause of much of the violence, uh, which was the war on drugs and prohibition, um, you know, all of those efforts would would only make uh, a limited would only have a limited impact. Um, so, I wanted to start getting Human Rights Watch to focus on the war on drugs. My next job at Human Rights Watch was as Deputy Washington Director, working on U.S. foreign policy broadly um, during the Arab Spring, and and I got to work on several different countries. Um, and I started seeing the same patterns I'd seen in Colombia play out in other countries, like in Mexico or uh, Afghanistan, where, again, you saw that you had all of this money being poured into fighting drug trafficking, yet whenever they arrested a leader or extradited or killed one, somebody else always stepped into, into their shoes. And uh, no matter how many efforts were made to stop shipments from coming into the US, um, the traffickers always had the resources to find other ways around it. That's why a border wall won't work. Um, and, you know, they have submarines. <laughs> it doesn't really make it. And catapults. And ladders, right? Even so, ladders. Yeah, and a lot of it also just comes through, um, you know, in checkpoints, hidden. But, um, and, and if you use fentanyl, you can disguise it even better. And so actually interdiction efforts sometimes have counterproductive effect, effects because uh, they, they use more potent uh, and more deadly um, uh, substances instead. But anyway, uh, so I started seeing how these same dynamics played out in other countries. And in Afghanistan, the US pouring billions of dollars into that war. And you have both the Taliban and the warlords uh, making money from, from the drug trade. And uh, then in turn they have all these resources with which to corrupt authorities. Um, so it's very hard to make any progress. Um, so, uh, and then I worked uh, on the US and I, I became co-director of the US program and I started seeing how the war on drugs was a root cause of so many devastating social justice problems, human rights problems in this country from the mass criminalization of people in the United States, people who use drugs uh, or people who are involved in low level, level sales often to support their own habits, uh, overwhelmingly of black and brown people because that's who police choose to target in the name of fighting drugs, um, the enormous number of deportations that happen uh, for low-level drug offenses, and, uh, and even surveillance. You know, I was supervising work on surveillance after the Snowden, and I was shocked to realize how much of it was justified uh, in the name of fighting drugs. So, so to me, it was very important that Human Rights Watch adopt a position on drug policy as a whole. And that's why the organization came out for decriminalizing personal use of all drugs and called on countries to start having conversations even about uh, what to do about the drug trade and how you can change these uh, um, incentives for organized crime and violence uh, in all these countries. And so of course that then um, meant that I was delighted to tackle these issues head on uh, at the Drug Policy Alliance, which is the premier organization working to end the war on drugs in the United States. Um, and I, I had known um, the then uh, executive director of the organization, Ethan Nadelman, and had been incredibly impressed by him and by the organization's work. And when he announced his retirement last year, I was uh, uh, delighted when I was approached to, to apply for it. So, um, what advice would you have for, for, for us, for normal people, people who come out here, you know, we take, obviously we're taking the first step coming out here and, and reading your book and, and reading about these stories, but what can we do with regard to, to drugs and drug policy? I mean, what, what steps can we take? Well, California has already taken some important steps with Prop 64, yes. and San Francisco is going to establish a supervised consumption site, um, which is a step towards moving into a public health frame as a way of addressing problematic drug use instead of uh, locking people up. Um, 
there's so much more that needs to be done, including in California. You still have too many people uh, going to prison for drug offenses. Uh, there's, um, you know, yes, there's progress on marijuana, but uh, people who use other drugs still face uh, you know, criminalization and conviction just for personal use of drugs, even if they harm nobody. Um, that's something that needs to change, and I think those conversations need to happen. We're going to be pushing from Drug Policy Alliance uh, for people in the United States to um, to move not beyond marijuana legalization and towards decriminalizing personal use of all drugs um, and providing support, uh, not punishment, uh, for people who do have problematic drug use. Um, and of course, that's even more important uh, now when you have tens of thousands of people dying uh, every year from overdose. So um, there are much better ways of doing this. Other countries do this much better. The US has a lot to learn. And, uh, and I just urge everyone to read and support and push for uh, these reforms. Great. Well, thank you so much for, for coming out and, and sharing some of these stories with us and, and talking with us. Thank you so much for coming, and thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.